Well, good morning. Thanks for being here at Cape Bible Chapel today. So good to see you. My name is James Green. I'm the teaching pastor here. Got to worship together there in song. We worshiped and seeing the baptisms. That's pretty exciting. Let's continue to worship today by opening up our Bibles together. Join me, if you would, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Today we're going to look at verses 22 to 40. While you're looking there, let me ask you a question. When you were growing up, and maybe this is still true for you today, did you have a poster of someone you looked up to, someone you wanted to be like hanging on the wall in your room? There's someone, you know, like a famous athlete or a musician or an actor actress, somebody that you were really into, somebody like that. If it was an athlete, you know, then maybe you had their jersey, knew their statistics, you had their trading card. Gatorade did a whole campaign in 1991 around the desire to be like Mike. You drink Gatorade like Michael Jordan. That person's a musician. You know all their music. If they're an actor, you know all their movies. Those are just some of the common ones, I think. You might be a little different. Maybe you had like a favorite inventor or mathematician or something like that. And you were at home making little miniature exploding volcanoes in your basement or memorizing word problems or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Posters on the wall memorizing player stats and building volcanoes. Does that sound a little juvenile? I think the notion of having someone to inspire us and serve as a role model doesn't have to be limited to our childhood. We're going to see some examples in Scripture today that whether you're young or old, these are solid examples. These are some people that we could look up to, somebody that we could model our actions after. So if you have somebody like that, they're, they're an example for you, that can be a neat thing. It can be an inspiring thing. I won't embarrass anybody by calling them out by name, but I have guys like that here in this church. Guys that I, I really want to emulate their decision-making style. I love their prayer life. I love the character they exhibit, and I want to have that kind of character. There's guys in the church who are older than me that I look up to like that. There's guys who are younger than me. It's not about age. Now, hear me on this. It can be a dangerous thing, so we have to watch out. You can have a role model as long as you don't stop being you, you know. Remember that God made you to be you. We're not supposed to be somebody else. But as long as your example is just an example, as long as they're just a model, then it's okay. Idolatry is bad. Hear me on that. Trying to be someone that God didn't wire you to be, that's bad. But following somebody's example you know, maybe they help you hone a talent. Maybe they help you unearth a character quality and really grow in it. If you're following somebody as they follow Christ, it's especially good. So today in this passage in Luke, we're going to see some incredible examples. One man, one woman. They're great role models, particularly in the areas of persistence and righteousness and faithfulness. Man, these are good character qualities. We're going to read about Simeon and Anna. They're two people who can teach us how to make godly choices. They're a neat case study because they love God, and they're led by the Holy Spirit, and they're obedient. And the thing that you notice in their life is they just want to be where God is. That's the example I think they're producing for us. And so their devotion to God really set the pattern for their everyday lives. And so today, as Christ followers, if we'd follow these examples of Anna and Simeon, we'd have lifestyles, honestly, that would be simpler. We'd struggle less with idolatry. We wouldn't have identity 
crisis issues. We would focus more on hearing from God and just being with Him. So here in Luke chapter 2, we saw that the first half of this chapter was the Christmas story. We already covered that in the last couple weeks. So if you missed that, you can go online and hear those messages or download the Cape Bible Chapel app. You can listen there. But this last half of chapter 2, it describes two really important incidents in the early life of Jesus. And both of these take place at the temple in Jerusalem, and they're separated by a period of about 12 years. Today we're going to look at this example with Simeon and Anna. And then next week we're going to see Jesus try and give his mother and father a heart attack. He stays behind at the temple. He's all about his father's business at his father's house. But apparently, like a lot of 12-year-old kids, he forgot to tell his parents about his plan to stay at the temple. The Bible says that Jesus grew. It must mean in his communication skills. And so Joseph and Mary freak out, you know, because they can't find Jesus. That's a great story. We'll look at that next week. But, but this second chapter of Luke is so unique. In it, we get the only account we get in the Bible of Jesus' birth. And it's really just about the only information we get of Jesus as a child. Matthew's gospel indicates that Jesus was born. We get that. Matthew records the visit of the wise men. He records Herod's paranoia, where Herod goes out and has all the little boy babies two years old and under slaughtered in that Bethlehem region. Matthew tells us that Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt with Jesus to keep him safe and protect him. And after Herod died, they would move back to Nazareth. So we get that little bit from Matthew, and then what we see here in Luke chapter 2, and that's it. We don't have a lot of information about Jesus before he began his public ministry. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says this, All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So you see that verse, and we look and say, Hey, Luke chapter 2 is all we get, and so I must believe that's all we're supposed to get. Scholars call those years of Christ's youth the lost years of Jesus. We just don't know exactly what happened. And I think there's some clues. I think we'll get some really neat clues actually here in the text today and next week. But we don't know a lot of details. There's probably a very good reason for this. I don't know that I know it, but I think the last verse in the Gospel of John really helps us. John chapter 21 and verse 25 tells us this. There are also many other things which Jesus did. They're written in detail. I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So this today, this is what we get. This is one of those examples where we have to learn kind of in the same way we teach our young kids sometimes. You know, young kids, they'll pout if they don't get what they want. They don't get their way. And you have to say to them, hey, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. So this in Luke chapter 2, this is pretty much what we get about Jesus' childhood. So don't throw a fit. So let's jump in and observe what's happening in the text. Luke chapter 2, and let's start by looking at verses 22 to 24. It says, And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they, this is Mary and Joseph, brought him, this is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb will be called holy to the Lord. So they go for that purpose and then also to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. Sacrifice could be a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So there's some ceremonies that are going on here. There's actually three of them, and we looked at the first one last week. That was Jesus' circumcision. 
And I included that last week because it didn't happen here at the temple. But these two ceremonies in the text today, they're at the temple. And the first is called the presentation of the firstborn son. And the other is a purification ceremony. It's the purification of Mary. Now, this presentation of the firstborn son was a huge, important ceremony. And it acknowledged that the firstborn children actually belong to God. They're holy to the Lord, as the text says. That's a quote from Exodus chapter 13. And so the intention of this ceremony is to remind people of how God delivered his chosen people while they were in Egypt. You remember the last of the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt was that all the firstborn of Egypt would die, people and animals. But the Israelites would smear the blood of the Passover lamb over their door, then the consequences of that plague, what, it would pass them over, right? Their firstborn would not die. So now you have this ceremony at the temple, and it's required because the firstborn were spared by God in Egypt. So now the Israelites, they'd bring their firstborn children and present them to the Lord be a way of acknowledging the child truly belonged to God. And this presentation of the firstborn never occurred before the baby was a little over a month old because with a, a boy child, you could actually combine this presentation ceremony with the other ceremony, the purification of the mother. Go to the temple and get a little two-for-one deal. You accomplish both of these on the same visit. This purification ceremony, also required by the law, this is all in Leviticus 12, you can read every bit of this, And this happened because women were deemed ceremonially unclean after the birth of a child. They'd be unclean for seven days after the birth, and then unable to enter the sanctuary for another 33 days. Now, this was tough luck if you had a girl, because the number doubled, and you were unclean for 14 days after the girl was born, and you couldn't go to the temple for 66 days. So when Joseph and Mary take little baby Jesus to the temple for the ceremony, he would have been about six weeks old, right? At least 40 days. Seven unclean days, 33 days. And so Joseph and Mary, they come, and they participate in these ceremonies, and they offer this sacrifice. And it's real telling because they offer the sacrifice of a poor person, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And again, if you go back and read in Leviticus 12, the normal sacrifice would have been a one-year-old lamb and then just one of these birds. But in that text, as a provision for the poor, it says, hey, if you can't afford the lamb, then you can bring two of the birds. And that's what they did. So we learn that they're poor in this account, but I think, honestly, there's something else we can see that's really impressive if you look at it. We learn a little background about Mary and Joseph. Because there's a phrase there in verse 23. It's also in verse 24. It occurs three other times in the book of Luke. And it says, according to what was said in the law of God, So Jesus' parents obeyed what was said in the law of God. Why would somebody do that? Why why would somebody obey what it says in the law of God? Well, for sure, that's that's an indication that they love God. Jesus' parents obeyed what was said in the law of God. They desire to be obedient. If they didn't feel like the law applied to them, they wouldn't do it, right? That's how we treat things like that. A lot of times that's our excuse for not wanting to pay taxes. We say, well, the tax law doesn't apply to me. No, the tax law applies, sadly, to every one of us. But I thought of it this way. I don't know if you've ever bought something, like small engine stuff is like this. If you ever bought a lawnmower or a weed eater, 
And you might buy a lawnmower and it comes with an instruction manual, but it's the same instruction manual for like 14 different models of that mower, right? You might have the self-propelled one or the mulching one or the one with the cup holder or whatever. And you're, you're assembling the mower and, and you get to somewhere in the steps and you're on step, step number 16 and it says, hey, if you don't have you know, model BR549, skip this step and just jump on to the next step because that one doesn't apply to you. Now, here's the deal for me. I believe the Bible is God's inspired word, just a big old love letter to us that we're supposed to apply literally in our lives. It's supposed to help us understand the path towards freedom and abundance in him. So when the Bible tells me to obey certain things, I want to follow them because I'm a Christ follower. That's my identity. But have you ever used the Bible to try and get somebody who's not a Christ follower to do something? You take the Bible to them and say, hey, in the Bible it says you're supposed to love your enemies. You know, what are they going to say? doesn't apply to me. So I'm not going to do that hard thing because I don't see the point in it. Well, here in the text, Mary and Joseph do what is according to the law of God because it applies to them. We learn they're really devout Jews. They love the Lord. They want to honor God. So that's why they participate in these ceremonies. Mary and Joseph want to go to the temple. They want to present the baby back to the Lord. Their little baby is God incarnate. But he's going to be raised on this earth by them. They're the ones who are going to pour into him and teach him and train him. It's incredible. We're going to have a parent and child dedication ceremony here in just a couple weeks, November 16th. It'll look a little different than this ceremony at the temple, but the idea is the same. You're going to have these parents come up, and they're going to stand here in front of everybody, and they're going to hold their kids, and we're basically going to ask them to say, yes, we love the Lord. We love the Lord just like Mary and Joseph did. And so we're going to commit to raising our children in such a way that we're praying they're going to choose to love the Lord. But it's their decision. Parents, we can't make it for them, right? I'd like to make that decision for my kids. But their faith has to be their faith. But then the parents will take the kids home and they'll raise them. They'll serve as an example. They'll pray for their kids. They'll train them up. And I guarantee the parents... Or just like the song we sang earlier, you don't want your kid just to survive, right? You want him to thrive. You want him to know God and make him known. I thought that was so neat in Justin's testimony. That's something that has been poured into him, and he's repeating it. So it's in conjunction with these ceremonies at the temple that we meet our role models here. We meet Simeon and Anna. And we see they both have divine inspiration and identifying this little six-week-old baby as the Messiah. So let's look at this text, and we're going to focus on what incredible examples they are for us. Such great examples that this is one of the two events from Jesus' childhood that makes it into the Bible. We don't get much. This is all we get. But Luke feels this is so crucial that we see this example, that he includes it in his account. First, let's meet Simeon. We'll start there in verse 25 and read through verse 32. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's huge. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came in the Spirit into the temple, 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, this presentation of the firstborn, then Simeon took Jesus into his arms and he blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all the peoples. He says, It's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So we don't know anything about this guy. The guy just comes out of nowhere. The only things we know about him we see in this story. He's a guy who wants to be where God is. That's what we know. And so he's hanging out at the temple. We don't know what tribe he's from. I think we can make a pretty safe assumption he's an Israelite. We don't know what he does for a living. I would venture he's not a priest because he has to be directed by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple. We don't know if he's married. We don't know if he has children. The only things that we know about him are the things that matter most to God, right? We hear about his character. We hear about his faith. We get to see his relationship with God. Are those the first things we ask somebody about when we first meet him? Hey, how's your relationship with the Lord? What do we ask? First question always, what do you do? It's easy to see why we have identity crisis going on. Because we hear that and we think, well, what I do, that must be what I am. It's not the case. We should totally change the way we go about meeting people. It would get us to the heart of people quicker. I know it might be awkward sometimes. But what if when you met somebody, that, you, know, you asked them a question like, hey, what is it that makes you come alive? What is it you do that when you do it, you can feel that you're wired by God to do just that thing? We have some awkward conversations like that. There in verse 28, Simeon comes up and he scoops baby Jesus out of Mary's arms and he starts praying. That's odd. Here in a couple weeks, we're going to have the parent and child dedication ceremony. If the parents are standing up here holding the baby and somebody comes up and grabs the baby out of your arms and starts praying, he's going to get tasered, right? I mean, we've got security here. That, that's just a little weird. We don't, we don't want to see something like that. But, but Simeon comes up. He's bold for the Lord. We know he's righteous. We know he's devout. These are character things. These things point to his walk with the Lord. And we can see he's a guy with faith and hope because it says he's actively looking for the promised Messiah. calls him the consolation of Israel. And we know Simeon is filled with the Holy Spirit, which is totally a gift from God because this is way before Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is what we see in Acts chapter 2. It's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happens at the end of the Feast of Weeks. There's this day of Pentecost where all Christ followers receive the Holy Spirit. My belief, that's really when the church age starts. Well, today, as soon as we begin our relationship with God, right, by his grace, through faith in Jesus, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit as our seal. But for Simeon to receive the Holy Spirit here, when Jesus is like six weeks old, what great evidence that Simeon just loves God. And now God is going to give him the Holy Spirit and use him in this incredible way. And Simeon had to have the Holy Spirit because that was the thing that allowed him to recognize Jesus as being distinct from the other babies. Everybody brought their firstborn baby. How did Simeon know which one was Jesus? Holy Spirit led him directly to the temple and then led him to the Messiah, right? 
It's not like the little babies come in wearing name tags, you know. Oh, look, that one's Jesus. No. And, and Jesus was a real common name, actually, back then. And, you know, today, nobody names their child Jesus, right? That would be odd. Hispanic cultures do. Jesus is a popular name. But if you're not in a Hispanic culture and you name your child Jesus, you're really not setting him up to thrive. I'm telling you, that, that kid's going to carry some baggage. He's probably going to get in some fights. I'm just saying. But here in, in Luke chapter 2, Simeon's directed to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And it says he's been promised that he won't die until he sees the Christ. And can you imagine the scene? In come Mary and Joseph carrying him. And because they didn't have tasers at the temple, Simeon runs up and he scoops Jesus up. Now just pause for a second and see if you can get your mind around this one. Can you imagine the joy that Simeon must have been feeling at that moment? He's been looking for the consolation of Israel. Now he's holding him. We don't have background on Simeon. We don't know how long he's been waiting for this day, but it's got to be a good long while, right? Because it takes a while to develop a reputation for being righteous and devout. That's not one you come by quickly. text says he's looking for this deliverer, the fulfillment of the prophecy, and he's not going to die until he's seen it. So we don't truly know how old Simeon is, but when the Holy Spirit starts talking to you about your upcoming death, you probably have several years under your belt, I would think. This leads me to believe Simeon's here in Luke chapter 2. He makes the cut. He's in the canon of Scripture. And one of just a couple stories we have about Jesus' childhood, I think because of his intense passion for the coming of the Messiah. I think that's the example that we're supposed to get from him. That's where he can be our role model. Are we intensely desiring Jesus' return? So Simeon trusts God. And he's at the temple because he wants to be with God. He wants to put God first. He's a great role model in his character and his perseverance. And so he gets this incredible joy. He's holding Jesus, and he prays. And his prayer is amazing. He says, finally, Lord, you're going to let me die in peace. But Simeon's prayer reveals another great thing about him as a role model. He's not all about himself. And that moment could have really been all about him, right? He's holding the Messiah. That's phenomenal. But then he says, my eyes have seen salvation, and it's not just my salvation. He says, it's a salvation that's now available for all the people, the Jews and the Gentiles. So we know Simeon's a guy who knows his Bible. He understands the Redeemer is coming, not just even for the people of God, but for all the nations. Maybe he memorized Isaiah 52.10. There Isaiah says, The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So call a time out and, and get this in your head. This is really happening. I mean, it may sound like a movie or it may sound like fiction, but Simeon's really holding Jesus. He's really talking about this salvation that will come be available for all the nations because of this little six-week-old baby. Now, shift your focus and think, how does that news hit Mary and Joseph? What on earth could they be thinking at this time? Look at verse 33. It says, his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. 
Now, I get this a little bit because I'm a parent. It's an incredibly rewarding gig. Not always the easiest of jobs, but, but just one of the greatest blessings I have on this earth. I mean, right behind being God's child and being my wife's husband, being a father is one of those things that makes me come alive. It's what I was wired for. And I personally, I'll just confess this, i got to check a lot in my spirit because it would be easy for me to want to take pride in my children's accomplishments. They get good grades or they do something cool in sports. It's easy, you know. Parents, we want to do that. That's my boy. That's my girl. And I don't mind saying that so much if we'll do it when they do something foolish, right? If they go out and do something stupid, we've got to say, that's my boy. I don't like that part quite as much. But, but, but if we claim it on one side, we've got to claim it on the other, right? I wonder how Mary and Joseph dealt with that. Do you think about that? We don't get stories of Jesus as a kid, but did they have those situations? You know, they're there at the market buying prunes for little baby Jesus, and they've got them, and somebody comes up and says, oh, what a cute baby. You know, they say thank you, or do they go, this, this is no ordinary baby. This is the Savior of the world here, you know. I don't know if they brag like that. I don't know. Truly don't know what's going on here, but, but you see Simeon in this prayer, and it says they're amazed at the things that Simeon is saying. And so maybe it's the look of wonder on their faces. Maybe it's just time to hear this whole story. But Simeon lays out a very specific promise for Mary, and it's weighty. Look at verses 34 and 35. It said, Simeon blessed them, both Mary and Joseph, and then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's better to take pride in the good things, right? Up until this point in time, the things that Joseph and Mary had heard about Jesus were all positive. He's the Messiah. He's going to rule on David's throne. He's going to set right the wrongs. He's going to bring peace and salvation. And now Simeon flips the coin. He says, hey, that wonder and amazement you have about Jesus being the Messiah, you've got to understand there's a bunch of prophecy to be fulfilled that indicates rejection and crucifixion. This little baby's going to reveal the hearts of people. And on account of belief in him or unbelief in him, many will rise and fall. I think the Holy Spirit uses Simeon here to begin to prepare Mary for the grief that she's going to suffer, you know, 33 some odd years later at the rejection of her son, who right now is a six-week-old little baby. Christ's rejection by men is going to be the thing that's going to cause her to witness his crucifixion. That certainly would be a sword that will pierce her soul. So Luke records this incredible encounter at the temple with Simeon. But there's more. As if that wasn't enough for Mary and Joseph to take in, then another really unusual thing happens. Verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, and she lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And get this, you can underline this in your Bible. This is a big one. She never left the temple. 
serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, when Simeon's holding Jesus and saying this prayer and giving this promise to Mary, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. How did she know? And continued to speak of him, of Jesus, to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we have this tremendous example from Simeon. Now we meet Anna. And Luke tells us, you know, less of what she says, but we get more background information about her. We learn what tribe she's from. We know she's a prophetess. We know who her dad is. And we see that phrase again, she's advanced in years. Luke used that back in chapter 1, if you remember, to describe Elizabeth. And it carries that meaning, she's as good as dead. Now, the text says she's 84, which to me, I don't really see as being as good as dead. But that's a hard phrase to translate in the Greek. It really is. There's a possibility that it could mean that she'd been a widow for 84 years. So maybe she got married when she was 13, which would have been a a pretty normal age. And and she was married for seven years, so she's 20. And then she's 84 years a widow. She could be 104. We can't know for sure. But we do know she was married for seven years, and then she was widowed, and then we learn the most incredible part of her story. At this time, she never leaves the temple. She's there all the time. That's how desperately she wants to be with God. She just lives there. She's praying and fasting, serving night and day. And so it's at this moment that Anna shows up and starts thanking God that the Redeemer had arrived. So now we know, really without a shadow of a doubt, what she'd been praying about. She was praying just like Simeon. She was praying for the coming of the Messiah. And I think the Holy Spirit revealed to Anna, hey, he's here. He's here and he's over there with Mary and Joseph. Now this is where I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to make an assumption about people. And just know I could be wrong on this. This next part's just me. This is not gospel. But I think we can read a story like that about Anna, and sometimes we have a tendency to look at a life like that and think, wow, what a waste. Her husband died after only seven years, and then she, what, gave up? She never got remarried. She didn't carry on the family line. She went to go live at the temple. She never went to Disneyland. Where was the fun? Anna was actually from one of the lost tribes of Israel, scattered during the Assyrian captivity. And so people could have said, hey, maybe it'd be good for her to go and be fruitful and multiply because her tribe could become extinct. But no, Anna makes the decision to remain single and devote the rest of her life to being with God, to praying and fasting. And the text says that after this encounter with little baby Jesus, she begins a new ministry, and it's this ministry of telling other folks who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, hey, I saw it. I saw the Messiah. He was with Mary and Joseph at the temple. I hope we understand. I hope we can grasp this. Anna's life was not a waste. She's here in the Bible in Luke chapter 2 because she gets to be this incredible role model for us because she was led by the Spirit, because she was faithful and obedient, and because she was determined to be where God is. Could she have done that if she'd gotten remarried, if she'd had kids? 
mean, I don't know the answer to that. Nobody does. But, but I'm thinking probably not to that extent. I mean, your focus changes. Your priorities naturally change when you have these different responsibilities. We know who Anna is. We know what she did. The thing we know is she was there all the time. She never left the temple. Okay, let's wrap this up. Look at verses 39 to 40 with me. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, there's that phrase again, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And what happened there? The child continued to grow, and he became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So we almost forgot why Mary and Joseph had gone to the temple, right? They'd gone for these ceremonies. We run into Simeon and Anna as our role models, and, and then the text doesn't say anything about how the presentation ceremony and the purification ceremony played out. But we see now they were accomplished, and so then the family takes the trek back down to Nazareth, about 140 miles. Probably would have taken them about a week to travel. And then after that, Jesus grew for 12 years. We don't hear anything more next week we'll see until 12 years old when he's going to the temple. But I think there's a clue here into the role that Joseph and Mary played in this. Because the text does say, the child became strong and he grew in wisdom. And so we can know Mary and Joseph raised Jesus. They provided for him. They loved him. They fed him. They protected him. All those things are necessary for growth, right? We'll see this next week. By the time Jesus was 12, he was already blowing people away with his wisdom and his understanding. He's here in the middle of this tiny little town, Nazareth, where a lot of the people would have been illiterate. And somehow, Jesus' parents made the way for him to be educated. They set him up to thrive. All that's aided very much by the fact that the grace of his father was upon him. So there it is. There's one of the few stories we get about Jesus as a child, a very young child here, about six weeks old. And so I want us to think about the application for us today. I was really struck by the idea of Simeon and Anna this week because they both possess this amazing godly character would make them great role models for all Christ followers. They just want to be where God is. So back in the day, that involved going to the temple. That's how you did it. The temple was the place of God's presence. It was God giving his people a place to come and interact with him. It was the place where sin was atoned for. We saw here Mary and Joseph bring their sacrifice. The temple truly was just the center of life and faith and worship for God's people back in the day. And so Annie and Simeon, they wanted to be where God was. That's where they went. They went to the temple. So how will we apply this lesson? They're good examples for us, and we want to follow them. How will we be like Anna and Simeon? If we want to be with God, what do we have to do? As I said before, because of the day of Pentecost, it's different for us now. We don't have to go someplace to meet with God. Every person here who has a relationship with God has the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Paul makes this so abundantly clear. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, he's addressing other believers, fellow believers. And he says, do you not know that you are a temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you? That verse really hit me 
this week because I was thinking about it, and it's sad. Sad for me personally. I'm not going to try and put this on you. But, but the sad thing is, even though I am the temple, sometimes I don't act like I want to be where God is. I don't act like I want to be with him. I think sometimes we act like our, our life could be more fun, it would be more of an adventure if we didn't have this temple with us all the time. Just one more incredible example to me of Anna and Simeon. They lived their lives sold out to the Lord. And they didn't waste their lives. They didn't miss anything. Because they truly understood all the fun, all the adventure, all the abundance, it begins in God's presence. I pray that we'll understand that. If we're going to choose to have role models like Anna and Simeon, if we're going to choose to follow their examples of faithfulness and persistence and obedience, because that's where the true abundance is. Because if we're walking around feeling like we're missing out on something because we're in the presence of God, then we won't want to be where God is. But if our application is, man, I can understand that being led by the Spirit, seeing salvation, experiencing the joy that comes from being where God is, if I can understand that's the good life, I can understand that that's where true joy comes from, then I'm going to have to go out and find some posters of Anna and Simeon to start selling so we can put them up because they're going to be our role models. Praise team's going to come back up. And we're going to do this a little different today. We're going to close with a song that I asked them to play. A song we closed the service with just a couple weeks ago. And this song kills me. I, I never make it through this song because I so desperately want to sing the words and mean them. So we're going to sing, this is our prayer today. And and if this is your heart's cry, the lyrics of this song are how you want to live your life. If you, like Simeon and Anna, want to be where God is, then you'll sing along. The lyrics say, my whole life, my whole life I place in your hands. So if we can say that, we're saying, okay, God, if you call me to sacrifice for you, if you call me to live at the temple, then that's going to be cool. I'm going to give all I am to seek your face. And God, I won't worry about where I live. I won't worry about my comfort. I just want to be in your presence. Simeon and Anna had this great joy because they were looking for the consolation of Israel. They were looking for the rescuer to come, and they got to see him. Jesus is the rescuer of the nations. And so if we get that, we can sing, Jesus, you came to my rescue. Because of that, I want to be where you are. Let this song be our prayer to God. God bless you guys. I love you. Let's pray together.